I'm gonna get to the word today and it is going to be a fun one, let me tell you. By fun, I mean not fun at all for me. Um, This is a hard one, guys. I'm not gonna lie. This is probably the most I've ever prepared for a message ever in my life, okay? Um, So if I seem a little solemn, a little uh, somber today, it's because I am. It's because uh, I've talked to many women in our church that have dealt with this topic of abortion and, and, uh, and I wanna share some of their stories with you, some of the things that they have gone through. And we're in this serious culture clash. And you're like, well, why are you even talking about this, Pastor Trevor? Why, why did you talk about alcohol last week? Why are you talking about uh, racism next week? Why are you talking about sexual sin, LGBTQ, all this stuff? Because listen, these are the conversations that we are already having in our break rooms at work. This is the conversation that you're already having at the Thanksgiving table with your crazy uncle we talked about last week. You know what I'm talking about. You're, you're gonna have these conversations and, and, and the world is having these conversations. So just because it's on Capitol Hill does not mean that we cannot talk about it in the house of God, amen? Like we need to understand that these are not political conversations. These are biblical conversations. This is not a, a politics issue. It is a morality issue. And that's why we talk about it as Christians, as Christ followers, because it matters. And I think that's why I wanna talk about it even more is because people care and it matters a whole lot. And and, and I said it last week, I'll say it every single week of this series. If you do not get a biblical perspective on these issues, culture will quickly give you its perspective on these issues. We need to have a biblical worldview or else culture will give you a cultural worldview. And your friends will tell you one thing. The media will tell you one thing. uh, Instagram will tell you one thing. I mean, but listen, I wanna go to the word of God as my primary source for truth, amen? And so I I wanna have a biblical perspective on the issue of abortion. And, And here's the deal. I understand that I'm a dude, okay? So let's just get that right out of the way real quick. Uh, I have never, nor will ever uh, have an abortion, okay? I've never even had to have that thought come across my mind. And so because of that, uh, I talked to a few women in our church who actually have had abortions. And I want us to be cognizant of the fact that you might be sitting next to somebody that has had an abortion and you don't even know about it. In fact, more often than not, there are many, many women in this place that have had one and won't even tell a single soul about it. Maybe even one, maybe two people, but you probably don't know about it. And, and, and there's, there's women in the church. I know this because I've talked to them. A few of them reached out to me after I uh, told them this is what the series is gonna be about. This is one of the topics we will be talking about. They reached out to me and we had a conversation about it. And then there was, uh, when Roe v. Wade got overturned, I quickly talked about it when we were still at the middle school. And I had a few women reach out to me as well during that time and tell me their stories. You know what I found to be very interesting is that many of them said that you're the first person I've ever told. And some of them had these abortions over a decade ago. The fact that I was the first person that they've ever told tells me one thing is that this is a deeply, deeply personal subject. And I wanna be aware of that. I wanna be cognizant of that. And I want all of us to understand that this time right here, right now is a time for healing, a time for grace, a time for forgiveness, a time for freedom. It is not a time to say, we got you. Look, this is what the Bible says. That's not what we're doing here. This is a time for freedom and forgiveness. And so one woman I I talked to in our church uh, said that she got pregnant as a teenager and her mother uh, was religious. And so she encouraged her teenage daughter to get an abortion 
so the church wouldn't find out and embarrass her family. Another woman I talked to had an abortion and afterwards told three of her closest friends that were Christians what she had done. Been friends with them for many, many years and they started immediately to say things like, how could you? Do you even know what you did? You could have put the baby up for adoption and the worst one that she heard was, you're a terrible person because of what you've done. Now the Christian position on abortion has always been that it's wrong and Christians are almost unanimously pro-life that has been changing over the last few years. But when a young woman gets pregnant, now the religious parents are more worried about their reputation than they are about the unborn baby and about their daughter. Think about that. When an anxious young woman makes this gut-wrenching, difficult, hard decision to abort her baby and then finally months or years afterwards works up the courage to finally tell somebody in the church, it's met with anger and exile. And so honestly, it's no wonder that women don't wanna talk about this. I, I get it, totally understand why you wouldn't wanna talk to anybody in the church about it because I've heard many stories like this and I'm sure maybe you have heard stories like this as well. And it's no wonder that they would rather suffer in secret than try to find healing because they're afraid that having the conversation could end up leading to more pain and more hurt and more suffering. And they just feel like, I don't wanna even deal with it. I don't know what they're gonna think about me. Are they gonna judge me because of what I've done? So like I said, some of the women that I talked to said that I was only the first or second person that they've ever told about this before. And to me, that is, that's crazy. It's so deeply personal, but they never felt comfortable enough to tell even maybe their closest family members, their closest friends. Because I'm like, why are you telling me? Why am I the first person that you're telling about this? And I understand I'm a pastor and people feel like they can maybe talk to me. Hopefully I'm approachable enough and people know that I love well enough that they can have that conversation with me. But why am I the only one? Like there's gotta be somebody else, right? Well, maybe, or maybe not. So that's why I wanna talk about it today because Man, this message is not intended to make any woman feel shame or guilt for having an abortion. I just want you to know that right here, right now. And if you have, or you know somebody that has, I would just want you to know right off the top that you are loved here at Radical Church. You have a place here at Radical Church. Man, God loves you and he has a plan for you in your life and he has a unique destiny for you in your life. And listen, no matter what you have done in your life, God can bring you peace and he can bring you comfort. And this is going to be a place of healing and freedom for all women and all men in this place. Can I get an amen today? So like I said, men, you need to listen up too. All right. I said, we talk about abortion. Okay. All the men tune out. Let me tell you, every abortion that's ever happened had a man involved. (laughs) All right. Every one of them had a man involved. And a lot of times I think the men suffer in some ways, because let's say that there was a man that gets a girl pregnant and she decides to have an abortion without even telling him. And what if he really believed that there was, there was a, a baby in there that he believes is, is a true baby, not just this clump of cells or whatever. And now he's like, well, that was my kid. That's tough for a man to deal with. Or maybe a man feels like, hey, well, I can't really tell you what to do. Like it's your body. And, I, and so I get that. It's a tough situation to be in. There's some men that actually encourage the women to get the abortion because they don't want to deal with it. So men, you need to listen up. Maybe you've never had a, a, a part in, in, in abortion or anything like that. You've never even really known people that have had one or whatever. 
Let me tell you, first off, you probably do know people that have had one, you just don't know about it. But men, number two, I need you to listen up because you need to be able to support the women in your life that have had one. And you need to be a man that is able to have that conversation like I was with a few of these women to support them and help them walk through it. I can't be the person to do that for everybody. That's your job, all right? So men, you need to listen up as well. So I wanna give you some information about abortion quickly, and then we'll talk from a few different perspectives. But there's been over 60 million abortions since 1973. Roe v. Wade made abortion legal, but just last year it was overturned, sent back to the states. The, the legality of abortion in the United States should not guide our convictions on this matter. I'm gonna be very honest with you. The legality of it on a state level should not guide our convictions on this matter. Uh, what science has to say about abortion, while it is a helpful source, is not our primary source about this matter. What Jewish history and what early church history and what the church necessarily either has to say about it is not the primary source. What is the primary source for any issue in our lives? That is the word of God, amen? That is where we go. It is our primary source. These other ones are secondary and very helpful, but it is not our primary source. And, and there's some stances on abortion that range from it's completely wrong in any circumstance to it's not wrong in any circumstance. And on the extreme side, many people are okay with abortion all the way up to 40 weeks. Um, that's a full-term baby for those of you that don't know. And some women, it's crazy, but they've actually held abortion parties. This is something that's happened. I'm sure it's very rare, but it just shows kind of the depravity of some people that they would have a party celebrating an abortion so that they can raise money to pay for the abortion. And they have drinks and everybody's hanging out, having a blast, like it's a good thing. And some doctors have detailed that if an abortion has failed, and this is extreme cases, I understand, okay? But if an abortion fails and the baby is not delivered, they'd ask the mother uh, whether they wanted the baby or not. It's a failed abortion and the baby gets delivered. The doctor's saying, hey, do you want the baby or not? If they say no, then they go ahead and abort the child outside of the womb. Let me tell you, that is not abortion anymore. That is the murder of an infant. And I think we can all agree on that, Right? Everybody agrees on that. It's just sick. It's, it's appalling behavior. And so what's the issue? Shouldn't we all agree on abortion? If we're Christians, like traditionally Christianity and Catholicism and, and Judaism has been pro-life, traditionally. And so shouldn't we all agree? Well, the reality is that we don't outside of the church, but even in the church, we don't. Not everyone has the same view. And it is really, it boils down to one question, okay? And it is the question, the ultimate question. When does human life begin? When does human life begin? If you believe life begins at conception, then no abortion is okay. If you believe life begins with a heartbeat or brain activity, then some abortion might be okay. And if you believe it's not until the baby is out of the womb, then all abortion is okay. And the traditional stance has always been that life begins at conception. That's the traditional Christian stance, which would make it taking the life of a child and a sin in God's eyes. So what I want to do is I want to look to four sources of guidance for this really, really difficult topic. We're going to look to science. We're going to look to scripture, Jewish history, and church history to reveal the truth on this question. So the first thing is that the scientific consensus is that life begins at conception. Okay, this is the scientific consensus. 
It's not a debate as to whether it is or isn't. Let me tell you why. In a scientific paper called The Scientific Consensus on When a Human's Life Begins, it was shown that 38% of Americans view fertilization as the starting point of a human's life. Fertilization is conception, okay? That's the same thing, synonymous. So that means about one in three Americans believe that life begins at conception. But then they asked, who do you think is the authority on this topic? Like, obviously, a general American, most of us in this room, I am not a scientist in any way. And so they asked, hey, who do you think is probably the number one person that you could ask that would know the answer to this question? And 80% of Americans said that biologists were the most qualified to determine when a human life begins. So then the guy said, all right, if y'all think it's biologists, which would make sense. He went on to survey biologists from 1,058 academic institutions and they surveyed items on when a human's life begins, and these were the results. 96% of biologists affirmed the fertilization view that life begins at conception. And that's from a paper, The Scientific Consensus on When a Human's Life Begins. Now, the next argument, uh, automatically, from somebody that may be pro-choice, would say, well, I guarantee you that's because they're pro-life and Christian. Nope, hold on. 85% of them self-identified as pro-choice. Even believing that life begins at conception, they still were pro-choice. It became more of an ethical question rather than a question of, is it a life or is it not? 63% identified as non-religious. So more than half of these people were not religious in any way. And then 95% of them held a PhD, so they weren't stupid either. The American College of Pediatricians, this is a quote, concurs with the body of scientific evidence that human life begins at conception. That's from their statement, when human life begins, from the American College of Pediatricians. This is not a pro-life movement. This is not a pro-life organization. This is the College of Pediatricians everywhere that stands by this statement. So, if people, maybe they say, okay, there's, there's 38% that believe it starts at conception. Most biologists, in fact, just about every biologist says it does begin at conception. But let's say you don't believe that. Well, then when does it begin? When the heartbeat begins, when brain activity is detected? Listen, these are not scientific positions held by any respectable biologist anywhere. No one thinks that. Okay, and let's say that you do think that though. Let's just go down the rabbit trail, the secondary moral arguments here of those different things. Let's say that you believe it starts when there's a heartbeat. What about somebody that's on a pacemaker? Are they not alive? Because their heart doesn't work right? What about somebody that is in a coma because they're not conscious in that moment? Are they not alive? Are we allowed to smother them with the pillow because they're dead? Basically, they've been in a coma for two months. No, of course not. Nobody would do that. Well, and then the next argument, well, the baby has to be viable. It's got to be a viable baby, able to survive outside of the womb. Uh, and then, and then we, won't, we wouldn't do an abortion from that point on. Okay, listen, any baby outside of the womb, if you just leave it alone, is going to die. Every baby has to be taken care of. So all of these secondary moral arguments, they don't even work anyway. Uh, and it doesn't matter because the scientific consensus is that life begins at conception. So none of those even matter in the first place. So that's the scientific view then. The next one is the biblical view. I started with the scientific one, not because it's our primary source, but because that's the one that everybody wants to go to first, right? And so that's why I started with that one. But here's the primary. The Bible is clear that life begins at conception. The moment 
you are conceived, let me encourage you with this. You are infused with God-given destiny, with God-given potential, and you have a life that is worth living. God has infused you with everything you need to live out the destiny that he has planned for you. In Psalm 139, David uh, covers this, that even before he was born, he understood that God had a plan for him. We're gonna read it. It says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. What is he saying? You knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was born. God has a plan for every single child and every single human that walks on this earth. Let me tell you, if you are breathing and you're sitting in this place right here, right now, God has a plan and a destiny for your life. And in the same way that he has a plan and a destiny for your life, it's the same for every unborn child in this world. Amen? So, God is talking to Jeremiah and another one, a similar speech, Jeremiah 1.5. And this is actually God talking to him. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. I knew you before I even formed you. Before you were born, I set you apart, appointed you as my prophet to the nations. And then back to David, Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So the word conceive in Hebrew is actually uh, kind of explicit in a way. It's kind of, it's a little uncomfortable. It's the idea, uh, it, it translates to heat, like a woman that's in heat or, a, or like the hot passion uh, in a sense. So it's, it's describing in a sense, the sexual activity that leads to the conception. And so he's not necessarily saying that I was sinful from the moment I was conceived. You could talk about original sin and theology of all that. What he is identifying though, is that he was a person, you can see that. He's saying from the time my mother conceived who? Me, me, from the very beginning, he was a person. So that's a little bit of Bible. I wanna take you to Old and New Testament then. Let's flip back and forth. So Old Testament law protected the unborn. We know this, and I wanna go all the way back to the beginning because I think we need to do this. Genesis one, y'all, in the beginning, God created, right? And what did he create? He created man in whose image? in his own image. And life, we know this to be true, is sacred and ordained by God. God is the one that breathes life into each and every one of us. And the air that fills our lungs every single day is ordained by God. And so to destroy a life is to destroy someone who was made in the image of God. Let's go to the 10 commandments then, right? Let's scoot on a little bit down in the Bible. Uh, one of the 10 commandments says, thou shalt not, what? Kill, right? Many of you said kill. Did anybody say murder? A couple of people, okay? We're gonna talk about the difference. It's not a mistranslation per se, but it could cause some misunderstanding. Thou shalt not kill. The King James Version specifically, if you look at just about any other version of your Bible, the ESV, the NLT, the NIV, all the different kind of versions, um, you could see that it says something a little bit different. But if you read it as any killing, right? Thou shalt not kill. If you read that as any killing, I shouldn't kill anybody. Well, then it makes sense that you'd be very, very confused when God tells Joshua to go in and just decimate an entire nation. You'd be very confused when God gives permission for people to kill on many, many occasions. So you're like, 
what's going on? God, are you going against one of your own commandments? Can God do that? Of course not. He's going to go against his own rule. So where's the discrepancy here? A more proper translation would be in the NIV and others that actually say, you shall not murder. There's two different Hebrew words and two different Greek words for murder and killing. One of those words means to put to death, and the other one means to actually murder. And so murder is the one that the Ten Commandments prohibits. That's the word that is used. Not killing, but murder. And it is very unfortunate. We see this happening uh, all around the world, especially what's happening right now today with terrorism all around the world. But there are times when killing is necessary to preserve life. That's a sad and dark, unfortunate reality. But that is the case. In the Old Testament, and even today, we see that. There's terrorists in this world that if left to their own devices would kill every single one of us in this place today, simply for the fact that we are worshiping God. Every single one of us. And they wouldn't think twice about it. So can a Christian serve in the military and take another man's life? Like This is a tough question, right? And every single person that serves in the military that is a Christian has to wrestle with this. If it's me against this guy, like this dude's got a gun, I've got a gun, he's going to kill me if I don't kill him. As a Christian, that's a pretty tough moral dilemma, right? I'm taking another man's life. It's a tough thing to do. But can a Christian serve as a police officer and use deadly force? Same idea. Can a Christian defend their family if an armed robber comes in and is about to kill one of your kiddos or is about to kill your wife or your husband? Are you allowed to take this person's life? The Bible is very clear that yes, all of these are justified. Why is that? Because killing and murder are not the same thing. They're not the same. So, what are the Ten Commandments prohibiting then? It is basically saying that you are not allowed to take a life that is not yours to take. That's what the Ten Commandments is truly saying. Let's go on a little bit further into the law. Exodus 21 it says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. If there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. What is this? This is called the law of vengeance. It doesn't say it necessarily, but this is what they call it. Theologians, it's the law of vengeance. The idea in the Old Testament was, if I cut off your hand, then you're allowed to cut off mine. Legit, this is how they did things. It was very much uh, transactional in a sense of that if you hurt me in this way, I can hurt you in this way. And this is just the law of vengeance. This is the way it was set up. Uh, and so it was an eye for an eye. And saying, if you cause the baby inside of her to be killed, then you were also to potentially be killed as well. It's the law of vengeance. The New Testament, let's flip over to that one. People will say, well, the New Testament doesn't talk about abortion. Not once does Jesus ever mention abortion. And you would be correct. But the New Testament silently affirms prenatal life. It does. It doesn't speak explicitly against abortion, but just because something is not spoken about in the Bible, does that mean that it's not wrong? Just be honest for a second. Think about it, guys. If Jewish law was that abortion was wrong, Jesus was a Jew, okay? Living in a Jewish community, and then he doesn't talk about abortion. Use common sense and realize the reason why it's not talked about in the New Testament is because ain't nobody arguing about it. Nobody was questioning whether it was wrong or not. He don't need to say anything about it because it was obviously wrong. Everybody agreed on that. 
The Romans didn't agree on that, but the Jews most certainly did. And so there's one huge example, though, of the New Testament silently affirming prenatal life. That is with John the Baptist, and that is Jesus. So there's a story of John the Baptist actually jumping in the womb when he meets Jesus for the first time. The first time they met was actually uh, in each other's mama's wombs, which is kind of cool. So let's read this. Uh, Luke 1, 35 to 36, we see the angel is talking to Mary about Jesus being born. It says, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. So what do we learn? Elizabeth is one of Mary's family members. I think she was her cousin and is in her sixth month of pregnancy with the boy that will become to known as John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for Jesus. So skip down a little bit. A few days later, verse 39 Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth because she's trying to spill the tea. She's like, girl, I'm prego and it's gonna be crazy because God told me about it. Super weird. She's trying to spill the tea to her cousin, okay? At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. So John the Baptist, this little baby that's six months in the womb, jumps for joy at the presence of Mary and this baby Jesus, this little embryo of Jesus at this point, probably. Here's the thing. People won't call an unborn baby a human being. They won't call it a baby. They'll use lots of other names to justify it. They're taking the life of an unborn child. Fetus, embryo, clump of cells, potential human being. That's probably the most egregious in one sense because we know that it's not a potential human being. It is a human being with God-given potential. That's what we believe is that every unborn baby has the DNA at the moment of conception for all of the potential that God has for them. Here's what's interesting is that the Hebrew word that's used for infant is the same word that's used for a fetus. The same word that's used for a baby outside of the womb is the same word used for a baby inside of the womb. In the Greek New Testament word for baby, get this, lean in, the same word that describes John the Baptist while he is in the womb is the same word that they use for Jesus when he's in the manger. It's the same word. What are they saying? Is that it is still a baby in or outside of the womb. It is just a different location. So both testaments, old and new, call unborn children what? Children. So now we look to the Bible, we look to science. Let's look to Judaism. First century Judaism condemned abortion as well. There's many different books and different things that are uh, ancient in nature that uh, were in first and second century uh, uh, Judaism. And there's a few different quotes that I want to give you from a few of these. Uh, one of them says, a woman should not destroy the unborn in her belly, nor after its birth, throw it before dogs and vultures as prey. Another one, Sibylline Oracles says, women that aborted what they carried in the womb were evil. They were described in this long list of people that were evil. And this was one of the things that said, these women are evil. 
there's an apocryphal book that is not actually in the Bible. It's the book of First Enoch. And so you could take it for what you want, but it says that it declares an evil angel taught humans how to smash the embryo in the womb. Interesting to say the least. And then finally, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, who he is very well respected and a lot of his works are taken in many ways, wrote that the law orders all of the offspring to be brought up and forbids women to either cause an abortion or to make away with the fetus. So that's early Judaism in first century and second century Judaism. But now let's talk about the early church and what the early church fathers believed. The Didache is one of the earliest written instruction manuals for the early church. It's actually talked about as the teachings of the 12 apostles. Now, we don't know if it was actually the teachings of the 12 apostles, like specifically they had a hand in it. But what we do know is that this is what they believed to be the teaching of the 12 apostles. It was referenced that way on many occasions uh, in, in early church history. So it says, you shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill them while born. Seems pretty clear to me. What about you? The early church fathers of Catholicism and Christianity all believed abortion was sinful. St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, uh, that's Calvinism, Martin Luther, Lutherans, Jonathan Edwards. And we're talking about like Methodists. We're talking about Catholics, Christians, Jews, like everybody all agreed. And they held the same belief that abortion is killing an innocent human being and is wrong in just about every single case. So, this is what I struggle with because we hear all of this stuff and then we think, well, okay, why don't we, why don't we all accept it then? Why don't we all have the same viewpoint? Because it seems pretty obvious that we should have the same viewpoint if you look at all these different things, right? But yet we don't. There's some Christians that really believe that it is a woman's choice to do what she wants and that all of this stuff is just whatever. And so why do Christians not accept this truth? I think the first thing is, is that it's never been taught. It's never been taught. Many of you have never been in a sermon before or sat through a message about abortion, okay? Maybe some of you have, but I would argue maybe 75, 80, 90% of you have never been in a message in church before where the pastor got up and an entire message was dedicated to this topic. And simply put, you don't know what you don't know, right? You don't know what you don't know. If you've never been taught about it, then how would you know about it? And this is, this is why I wanna talk about these things, because if we do not get a biblical worldview, y'all, culture will be your worldview. Media will teach you what it wants you to say and what it wants you to think. Instagram and college campuses will tell you what they want you to think and what they want you to believe. And that's why we have to talk about it. So the second thing, why don't we accept it? I think we choose to believe things that fit our best interests. That is just the truth about human beings, right? Like I wanna believe the things that benefit me the most. And you could talk about confirmation bias and all that stuff. And I know some of y'all would probably even say that I'm doing it right now, okay? I understand that. I get the idea of confirmation bias, all right? But it's so obvious here. We see this and yet we don't choose to believe it because we like to believe the things that fit our best interests and what we want. Um, there's a few situations where abortion seems morally acceptable, and we'll talk about that. And I think many times because it seems morally acceptable in these uh, very small situations that happen only just every once in a while that we take the whole thing as okay. And so let's talk about that for a second because I'm gonna be honest, this is the hardest part. You talk about rape and incest. That's the next question. What about that? 
What about rape? What about incest? What, what do you do then? No matter how clear the Bible is, no matter how clear church history, Judaism, whatever, no matter how clear all of it is, science, it will never make somebody being sexually assaulted, raped, and then getting pregnant any easier. I, it doesn't matter what I say here today. It, that's not gonna make it any easier. It's awful, it's terrible, it's evil, it's immoral. I've never experienced anything like that, but I know there's a lot of women in here that have. And I'm gonna say something here because I, I can never imagine the emotional difficulty that you've gone through because of that. And maybe to carry your abuser's baby and you have to think about it all the time. It's just a constant reminder of what you've been through, a constant reminder of what you suffered. But is the murder of a child the solution? If we believe that life begins at conception, is the murder of a child the solution to the trauma that you've been through? We learned this when we were kids, but two wrongs don't make a right. And I know that's hard to accept, but less than 1% of abortions are also due to rape or incest. And at the end of the day, every child has the right to live. Why? Because the Bible says that every child is a gift from God. And as difficult as it may be, the circumstances of conception does not change the fact that that child is a gift. Whether or not that child seems like a burden, whether it seems like a reminder of what you've been through, the child is still a gift and the child is still innocent and hasn't done anything wrong. What if the mother's life is in danger? Well, I get this one too, of course. Well, less than 1% of abortions are performed to save a mother's life. And so historically, uh, the Christian faith has actually favored the mother, okay? So here's one where it actually, uh, in many instances and in many occasions, uh, Christian early church history and Judaism also has provisions for the life of the mother and the health of the mother in a sense. Um, a very real scenario, many men that are in this place, you might have never heard this term before, ectopic pregnancy. Many women that have had kids before, I've gone through this, you know about this. Nurses, doctors in the room, this is probably the first place that you were going to. It's like, well, what about this? Okay, listen, there is no chance of survival for really either the baby or the mother. It's not gonna work out, okay? Like they're both probably going to die if you let this ectopic pregnancy continue. What is it? Basically where the embryo is forming on the outside of the uterus. And there's unfortunately no way as of now anyway that they can actually take that embryo and implant it inside of the uterus. It's just not how it works yet. They don't have the ability to do that at this point. And so even the most pro-life OBGYNs understand that the child's life or the mother's life has to be prioritized in that situation. You could be, super, super, super pro-life and still understand that, yeah, this is just a different scenario. It's not the same thing. So overall, it's a terribly difficult ethical situation. But if all other avenues are blocked, it might be necessary to save the mother's life and not the child. We understand that. But what's the first thing that we should do when we get a, a message or news that maybe the mother's life should be, might be in danger? We have to pray. That's the first thing that we have to do. Many times we just listen to what doctors and nurses say, but we don't even go to the great physician. His name is Jesus. Like we gotta go to prayer first, y'all. We have to go to prayer first. And we should always 
seek a miracle if it's possible. Man, I've seen this time and time again. Keaton Fouts is our kids pastor. His brother, Carter, um, was almost aborted. Let me tell you why. Pastor Kevin was here a few weeks ago. He's my pastor and he actually told this story. But uh, Martha, him and his wife, they got pregnant and they were told that Carter was going to be brain dead. He was probably not gonna survive even in the womb, but that she was gonna have a significant uh, difficulty delivering this child who was probably going to be stillborn. So there was a very small chance of him living. They got together, Kevin and Martha, and they said, what are we gonna do? Let's go to God in prayer first. Right, that's the right move. They prayed. They asked God, what do you want us to do? And they decided that they were gonna continue with the pregnancy. Very tough decision to make. And so they continue with the pregnancy. And then as time goes on, Martha is really suffering. And eventually Pastor Kevin finds her. She woke up and was just in a pool of blood and takes her to the hospital really quickly. They deliver the baby. They named him Carter. And they said, this baby will only last maybe an hour. And then after an hour, they said, he's probably only gonna last about another hour or two. You gotta say your goodbyes. And then they said, he's only going to last a week. Well, he's probably going to be mentally challenged for the rest of his life. And yet Carter Fouts is alive and well today. And he is very, very intelligent. And he will make sure to let you know about that. Okay. So he is a great kid who's serving the Lord and going to college, doing great things for God is about to get married in December. Just got their wedding invitation in the mail. So there's another story, Pam and Bob, they were missionaries in the Philippines. And and uh, she got amoebic dysentery, one of the leading causes of death in the Philippines at the time. And, and the doctor said, you're probably going to die. Uh, you're going to have a very serious complication if you don't abort this child. And they prayed and they said no. And, and uh, this child was born and they named him Tim. That's what they named him. And if you know our worship pastor, his name is Tim Martinez. But it wasn't him, actually. So I just want to mess with you. His name was Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow, the famous football player who now is an advocate for adults with special needs. And we do the night to shine every single year where we have, host a prom dance for adults with special needs. What about them? What about their lives? Do they matter? Man, I absolutely think that they do. And I think that played a huge role into Tim Tebow and establishing the Tim Tebow Foundation. So listen, now that we've heard from God's word, church history, Jewish history, science and everything, what do we do with it? Are we just supposed to discard everything and just accept abortion as okay? Or of course not, I don't think so. It is in fact a sin is what God would say. Do we excuse the sin and just say, ah, well, it's not a big deal. It's more of an ethical question. We just gotta let people decide, you know, like what they wanna do with their own bodies. I don't think that's the answer either. But then do we treat all women who have had abortions like trash and push them out of our church and our lives? Absolutely not. And it's sick what people do in the church to people that have had an abortion or live an alternative lifestyle. I mean, they'll push them right out as if they never existed. Should we make them feel more shame or guilt than they've already had to deal with? They've already dealt with the guilt and the shame and, the, and all this other stuff and we're gonna heap more on them? Like that's helping anything? Absolutely not. We should not do that. That is the beauty of what the church is supposed to be about, which is what? Forgiveness, healing, safety, a place where you can have a conversation. And there was one of those women I talked about that had an abortion that goes to our church. She said, until I made friends at Radical Church, no one had ever told me that I was loved and accepted after I told them about the abortion. No one. She had those three friends that pushed her out 
And they're not even friends to this day. And yet when she came to Radical Church, she finally had the courage to say something about it to people she met here. And she was met with love and grace and forgiveness. She said, telling me was scary because she had met, been met with judgment before. And she finally told me, we had this conversation right after Roe v. Wade. And it was beautiful. At first she was mad when I talked about it because I said the Bible is unequivocally pro-life. She was mad. I almost didn't want to come back. But then the next week she came back and we had a conversation. She broke down. And she said that that conversation for her was the most healing conversation she's ever had about it. But I can't be the only one. We have to be a church of people that are willing to have those kinds of conversations with women. Help them feel safe enough to have a conversation with you, with a family member, with a trusted friend. And the church must be a place of healing for any woman with an unplanned pregnancy. Must, not optional, must. This is what God calls us to do. If we say that we want you to have the baby, then we better support you when you do. That's our job. Like we can't just have a position on something and say, this is what the Bible says. But then the Bible also talks about supporting widows and orphans too. Like the Bible talks about supporting single moms. Like we have to do these things. And she told me that when she was in the recovery room, after you have an abortion, they take you to a recovery room. You got to wait there for a while. She said that there was so many emotions on these moms' faces you would not believe. She said many of them were feeling this relief that, man, this is finally over. Like all this pain and this suffering, I went through all these questions and difficult stuff I've had to deal with and all these people that have said things and maybe, I, maybe they've been hiding it in secrecy and they haven't been able to talk to anybody and they finally had this abortion. Like, man, it's finally all over. The relief. But then she said there was other that you could tell that they had so much regret. I can't believe what I just did. Like, this is awful. Like, I, did I make the right choice? Did I do the wrong thing here? And then, but what she said was interesting is that it kind of seemed like they had a mix of both. And it would just come in waves, like relief. And then a wave of regret. This wave of relief and wave of regret. And they were just feeling all the emotions all at the same time. And listen, the church, we have to care for single moms. We have to care for our schools. We have to care for children without a home. We have to care for the foster parents that are brave enough to take in those kids without a home. And you can't say that you care about the unborn without also caring for the children outside of the womb. 